The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor of Federal News Network, and it's our six-month catch-up where we go over all things procurement um, and you know Jason uh, welcome to the show. Roger always a pleasure to catch up there's so much to talk about I'm excited to be here. I can tell I mean the, the, I just heard it in your voice it was great so you know first of all I guess we'll start with GSA and it's the uh, I guess the long saga journey of uh, uh, sojourn whatever you want to call it of uh, TDR transactional data reporting and where it's going you know, that's, it's been a pilot. It was expanded, partially expanded across the schedules program. And I know the GSA IG has been, uh, you know, um, expressing concerns about it and through a series of reports. Um, what's your take on where it is and what's going on? I think there's two things going on here. And, and, you know, Roger, I go back to the Guns N' Roses song, uh, where they lead off with the cool hand, Luke, there's been a failure to communicate. <laughs> uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember the, uh, the, the both the movie and the song. Um, That's a great movie. The, the movie, of course, is Civil uh, the, the, the The movie is Cool Hand Luke, of course, and the song, of course, is Civil War by Guns N' Roses. But what, what I read when I hear GSA talk about it, and you know, listen, Jeff Kosas and Mark Lee spoke at your all conference in the spring and really was very articulate and, and forthcoming about how they feel about TDR. You read what the IG continues to say about TDR. And I just come back to, there's, they just need to get in a room together and talk this out. GSA is not going to budge. It's clear that they believe that this is beneficial. And I think it's also clear that TDR maybe have changed since 2015 when it was first launched uh, with this idea of replacing the price reduction clause. I still think they want to replace the pr- price reduction clause with it. But just because the goal from 2015 or 2017 was X, today it could be X plus one or X plus Y. And I think the IG is hung up on what happened in 2015, which says, you're going to do X. Are you doing X? And if you're not doing X, then why are you doing this? And I think for whatever reason, and, and, and I don't have any insights in term, terms of why, but it feels like that they're the, the talking past each other or talking around each other. And, you know, after Mark Lee and, and Jeff Kosas talked about this at your conference and there was the most recent IG report, I wrote a story that basically said at the end, maybe it's time to lock them in the room with some pizza or something better and make sure that they get together and, and to figure out what's the way forward that can satisfy both their needs. Because I don't think GSA is going to back off of TDR. I don't think the IG is going to stop saying it doesn't work and they should end it. And I'm not sure what goodness is coming from these two different opinions. Yeah, and um, you know, pizza would be good, I think. Uh, an ice cold beer with it would be even better. But um, or several. So, oh, see, yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> especially being that that kind of conversation, <laughs> exactly right. Um, you know, I think you make a great point about you know just kind of pa- talking past each other. But I think it's even 
you know, it's at a high, even higher level than that. It's almost like there's different, there's a fundamental different perception with regard to what the program is, is to the pro the goals of the program, the mission of the program, the schedules program. So, and I'll explain it this way. Someone who worked there and, you know, that's seen this evolve over time is this, this program has significantly evolved since the 1980s. You know, it used to be a mandatory source. It used to be a closed solicitation that was open maybe once a year. Uh, people had to use it. There were a limited number of contractors. There's a limited number of products. And as a closed market requirements based contract, you know, the, the, there, there was kind of a need for, seeing how you could leverage requirements. There weren't the competitive ordering procedures as well in the program. There was no e-buy electronic quote to there's no GSA advantage, all those things. Well, today we're in the 21st you know, century, right? You have e-buy, you have statutory and regulatory competition requirements at the task order. You have a program that GSA has restructured fundamentally to focus at competition for agency specific requirements at the task order level okay so that's where people leverage and get the best deal based on their terms and conditions right that's the way it works that's how the commercial market works but the ig still continues to focus on you have to leverage the collective buying power of the government at the contract level well, how do you do that when you have 10,000, 12,000, 18,000 contracts and you have thousands of buyers across the government, lots of customer agencies using it and taking their specific requirements and putting them out there and say, hey, give us a better price for that. It just they're they're talking. They don't have a fundamental understanding of the way the program works at the end of the day either. I think that's where they should start the conversation, you know, because they have different fundamental goals or perceptions or and measuring points of how the system works um what do you think of that the the piece that i think you really hit upon that i I think gets lost in the discussion is how prices are determined these days and prices are determined at the task order level and i know we're going to talk about polaris and the sea change that that decision by the court of federal claims brought but the but the point is is that nobody says you know, when you go to the grocery store and you buy spices, right, you're going to buy some cumin because you're making chili this weekend, Roger. I know you're a big chili fan. And you are correct. And uh, yes. it says there this eight ounce, this four ounce thing of cumin is six ninety nine, But the price per ounce is eighty five dollars and ninety two cents per ounce or whatever, you know, kind of like right. they tell you what the the bigger pick number is, but you're not buying that size. You're buying a little bit of it. So therefore, it, it seems like GSA's focused on that six ninety nine bottle of cumin because that's what the going rate is in the supermarket. And the IG says, no, no, it should be $85 per ton or per whatever the, 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 the larger is. And, and that's where that disconnect's happening. And, and I always ask, why can't they get together about it? Why? It seems very simple. You and I can explain it. You and I understand the, di- the two different prices and which price do we really care about in the end, which is that six ninety nine price, because that's the one we're actually paying, not that bigger number that will never buy a metric ton of cumin at $85 or whatever the, <laughs> the, 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 the size is. You get my point. Right. I, I just don't know why we're so focused at this master contract level. And, and I think my guess, and again, this is my guess because the IG has not talked publicly about this and not talk to me about this is they're very black and white in terms of following the law. The law says X, 
are you doing X? And I think with any audit, with any view, you've got to change with the times. And I'm just not sure they have yet. And I'm not sure the law has yet or the policies have yet. And I think that's also another issue that GSA and OFPP, don't get me on my soapbox, Roger, should really start looking at. Well, the law, I mean, the GSA is trying to evolve by moving, frankly, to transactional data reporting, right, to focus on the relevant information in the market. That's transactions, what the price is paid at that level. And that, and, and the law has changed. There are statutory competition requirements at the task order level, you know, that are been, been implemented through regulations. So, the, so Congress, in a certain sense, has spoken and that the important place to, to focus on is competition at the task order level. You know, GSA reformed the program to provide for blanket purchase agreements where I know you're not a huge fan, but but if you if you're leveraging a requirement over time and I'm gonna buy six thousand laptops over the next six months, rather than placing individual orders and getting a price for each of those, I say that the market, you know, give me your best price for those six thousand and I'll order them from you. That's essentially what you know a single award BPA does. Um, you know, that government gets a great price in that context, and the program's been built to provide that. But at the same time, that's where the aggregation of volume for a specific co- customer comes in place. It doesn't come in at the at the contract level. That's almost it's Im- frankly impossible to do at this point. And by the way, I make a a mean turkey and black bean chili. I have to tell you, it's very good. Well, I'll have to share it with you sometime. We could do a chili cook-off. And when we have the chili cook-off in the office, we will invite you this year, Roger. I, please do. I will, I will bring, I'll bring a couple different you know, styles, okay? Uh-oh. uh-oh. <laughs> okay. The, the, last um, piece I'll, uh, the last piece is just about TDR that I'll, I'll just highlight is I'm wondering, Roger, if this is something will, – will Congress ever get involved in this challenge? Will, will, you know, it seems to me that the vendors who are part of – TDR like it, and they don't want to go back to the price reduction clause, which is, I think, part of the reason why GSA is not going to, quote unquote, give up on the pilot as the IG keeps saying they should. Is this a place where Congress would need to, I don't know if legislate is the right word. I mean, that's what they do. But if, if they would hold a hearing on the benefits of TDR and why TDR, is it, or is this just so in the weeds uh, Emily Murphy left years ago, and no one else is probably ever going to care about TDR like like someone like her or Julie Dunn would. Um, I, I, it is a boiler. Bro- We're in the boiler room here, right? We're in like you know working on the gauges and all that sort of stuff, right? Right down, you know. So I, I'm not sure that you know a uh, uh, congressional focus is you know is something that would happen i mean i think you know to your point at the end of the day all the stakeholders in the program should get together and figure it out and i think the first step would be to you know to come to some common understanding of how the program operates or and because there there clearly isn't when one entity is talking about you know uh leveraging the collective buying power at the contract level and the other entity has built in a program that clearly focuses on the transaction and leveraging requirements at that task order level. It's, you know, they've got to figure that out as a threshold matter and then go on from there, I think. Uh, Jason, we're up on the time. Uh, so when we come back, we'll continue to talk about GSA and perhaps the uh, Paul Harris decision and with the impact of that. We talked about competition and some some government-wide contracts. 
Uh, we'll take a look at that and get your thoughts on that. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network, and we're doing our, you know, sort of semi-annual take a look at what's going in, on in the federal procurement market. And, um, you know, most recently, one of the big things in government-wide contracting or IDIQ contracting in general is um, the Polaris uh, bid protest decision and its impact on, um, you know, the use of, uh, un- you know, a uh, evaluation methodology that does not consider price in at the contract level for award um, for civilian agencies. DOD has its own unique authority and is continuing to use that. And it's a very different authority in terms of the, the, the structure of it in statute. So Jason, um, your thoughts on the decision and what does it mean for some of these big programs like Oasis Plus, Alliant 3, Polaris itself, obviously. What's surprising about this decision from the Court of Federal Claims, which I think came in uh, late April timeframe, and, and, you know, Rogers, to give myself some shameless promotion, I wrote a nice long story about it and and have a link to the full uh, court decision on federalnewsnetwork.com so folks can find it there for sure. But what's really interesting is that the vendor who submitted the protest, the decision by the judge may not even help that vendor. They submitted several protests and uh, parts of, you know, kind of pieces to their protest. And while they won, uh, this change 876 may not even help them. And and that's this maybe the sadder thing. Uh, The protest was by SH Synergy and VCH Partners uh, about the broad authority that Congress granted GSA about whether price matters under, you know, the, the main contract level. And basically what the judge said was, we GSA interpreted the language from Congress too broadly, and it should just be applied to those task orders that are based on hourly rates, not necessarily just the, the at the at the contract level. And you know this pushed GSA to have to pull back the awards to Polaris, change up their Oasis Plus strategy, change up potentially other strategies they're doing with, for instance, the Ascend BPA, the Alliant Three effort, and decide okay what's the path forward. And what the problem here is, again, Roger, I think very similar to the TDR discussion, I think we all in the federal procurement community recognize what matters is at the task order level. The contract level just is not that important. And for the judge to say, well, the law says this, you got to follow the law. To me, what's got to happen is Congress has got to fix this with a technical amendment. And they've got to do this in the NDA this year. And this is not, this is, should be an easy fix. I find it hard to believe anyone would, would push against it. I'm sure somebody will for reasons we, we won't understand, know about, or ever grasp. But this is really going to change the way GSA goes forward with several, several of their big contracts. And, you know, Tiffany Hickson at your event in the spring, that's what she basically said was we, we're, gonna, we're planning to get Oasis out by end of you know, May, now it's going to get pushed out a little bit because we got to figure out what our next steps are and how to address the judge's decision in the RFP. And I, I think that's a bad thing all the way around. Yeah, it's interesting um, that you, you know, a couple of points that, I mean, I think off the top that you mentioned, I don't know how this really um, is to the advantage of the protester. 
to to have challenged this particular authority. I mean, it does at the end of the day help them win a protest and get another shot, right? I guess. Um, you know, in the event, you know, in the in the procurement. So I guess that from that perspective, it's a short term win, but for a long term, perhaps not over time. Um, you know, and I, I do think you're right that there is, you know, that this essentially requires a legislative fix of some sort, uh, you know, technically to, 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 to expand, you know, the scope of the applicability of the, of, of this authority to ensure that it covers other contract types. The language was always kind of problematic because it uh, talked about services based on, uh, based on an hourly rate or I'm paraphrasing it. So essentially, but it did refer to hourly rates um, or on an hourly basis, priced on an hourly basis, um, which, you know, you read the plain meaning of the the, lang- the statute, which the judge did, and even DOJ and everybody else said, that's what it says. So, how, you know, so it kind of, um, you know, I think everybody else was just trying to make sure it, the authority was being used and used appropriately, but, you know, uh, this is what happens. Um, how do you think, do you have any sense um, or what you think that how um, GSA will evaluate moving forward? Do you think they'll go back to the, the you know, the original Oasis model where they kind of do a sampling of pricing and determine that fair and reasonable, but, and just do fair and reasonable high tech, which I think believe that was challenged as well and found to be a appropriate methodology for award. I think they probably don't have any choice in the short term to do that. I think they have to figure out what has worked, what is admissible by their court, or they think the lawyers believe is is admissible uh, in in this process. And I think this is going to put a big hamper on these contracts going forward, because, again, unless if Congress really does fix it this year with NDA, which I don't know if you want to put a, if you're a betting man, Roger, I would say the chances, unfortunately, probably are pretty small and they probably will have to wait till next year to get it done the way legislative proposals work. But uh, I I get the sense that, you know, they're going to have to go forward with the line three and maybe some of the others that are just going to use the old, the old method, which I still think is is better than the contract, you know, highest, uh, the the pricing at the contract level, uh, approach, which is just, you know, I think has gone out of style years ago and was never yeah, you mean like the best a value, a best value trade-off kind of approach where you yeah. have to take cost and price and combine them, come up with who's the best value, you know, you know, I guess GSA and others essentially determine best value is I got a fair and reasonable price at the contract level and whoever's the highest technically rated will be in the award pool. And then you do price and, and technical value uh, competitions at the order level. Um, do you have any thoughts on the other part of the decision with regard to the mentor protege issue? That's been a huge ongoing problem, I think, for for years. We saw it with NIH, CISP4, and they're still hung up in protests, which, by the way, I know we may get to that later, but they're down to only about 80, 80 protests now up you know, from their high of 117. So uh, they're, they're, they're making slow progress. But I think, I think that's an SBA issue. They've got to address this issue of mentor protege. I think the initial thoughts behind it was was smart on GS on SBA's perspective. How do we get more small businesses with larger contracts? But I think it's also impacting. There's some unintended consequences that they have not uh, addressed yet. And I think part of the issue that they're facing is how much to give credit 
for the mentor's past experience. And um, I think in the end, they probably are giving too much credit for those mentors' past experiences and really should focus on the protege's past experiences and then using some of the mentor's ability or what they bring to the table as well. Uh, you know, related to this, Roger, I'm not sure if you saw this. There was a uh, white paper put out on Alliant 3 and some concerns about the impact of Alliant 3 on the mid-sized businesses, uh, which is a common refrain we've heard for 25, 30 years, as long as I've been doing acquisition, is what about, you know, if you're not uh, you know among the largest contractors, you're not among the smallest contractors, you're stuck in the middle and there's no room for you in the middle because as you know, you're, it's, it's either you're small or other than small. And, and I think that that's where this mentor-protege challenge comes in as well. It affects those mid-sized businesses because they just can't compete with the large businesses on past performance and some of the other pieces and parts that come with it. Yeah, that, that issue about um, mid-tier companies and their ability to compete in the marketplace has it's a I was at GSA when that was an issue as well and they you know collate you know they created you know like I believe Millennial Light was a old I mean we're really dating ourselves but like uh, you know for those young folks out there listening that was a one of the first uh ITG wax uh type contracts and it was focused on mid uh I think that one was focused on mid-tier size companies but but GSA made a conscious decision to have like a small business contract, a very, you know, large integrator type vehicle, and then had one in the middle that was kind of designed for those mid-tier companies back in the day. And it was all sort of, yeah, this is our approach and in talking to industry, just how it was all going to fit together. Um, and, and then I think also mid-tiers in the past had looked to the schedules program for, you know, a lot of their opportunities as well. I don't know if that's as true today as it was, you know, at the beginning of the, the century in the 2000s and whether that's evolved or changed, but that's something, there were studies done on that as well at that time. But that's a tough, that's a tough issue to address. And I think your point about mentor proteges does, it does impact them as well. You I, know, I think, Jason, I, we're up on, I was going to say real quick, Roger, I was, was going to say, I'm not sure okay. that the answer around mid-tier, if there is one, I think you're always going to lose folks somewhere in the realm because even if you put the mid-tier at $300 million or, or below as revenue, the difference between a $300 million company and, say, a 50 or $70 million company is still pretty large. Now, it's not as large as a billion-dollar company and a $70 million company, but there's no way to, to shrink that. I remember years ago um, uh, when I was covering small business contracting, one of the associations, and I don't remember offhand who, who the association was, but I remember this, they had proposed get rid of all socioeconomic classes and have a tiered, very small, under a million, small, under 10 million, you know, medium, 10 to 50 million or whatever the, and then on their way up to large and extra large. Uh, you could do it, you know, Starbucks, you know, Grandi, Venti, you know, uh, uh, tall. And uh, that was an interesting concept. It never took off. But it, they you know, years ago, this came up as a way to try to address the, those challenges. And, and I think you're right. I don't, I don't think there is a good answer. But it's interesting to see that this is coming back around as the contracting pieces get harder to address when you talk about either bundling and or the mentor-protege impact. 
Right. Well, you know, and one of the, the, the things is that at the end of the day, at, right, and, it, you know, the, there's been a fundamental decision to create markets, separate markets for small businesses, right? And even within the small businesses, there's, you can create a separate market by doing, you know, uh, an ADA set aside, right, or hub zone set aside, or service stable veteran owned. So you've created this whole infrastructure about how to, you know, that allows federal agencies the discretion to identify, you know, in a sense, contract vehicles and markets for specific categories. And that's that's ingrained at this point. And it's, you know, it's a goal of the federal government. I don't see how it's hard to adjust that in any way, you know, in the formula that you described earlier or to add another category that's not essentially what people think is small, but is not large. Right. So, um, but anyway, we have to take a break, Jason. Uh, when we come back, uh, and I want to just ask you about your take on NASA soup, and then we can move to some other, uh, you know, topics of the day, whether it's the NDAA or, you know, some small business challenges on facility clearance, some of the things you've been covering in the news recently. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's executive editor of Federal News Network, and we're doing our roundup on government contracting year to date, so to speak. Um, course we can't cover everything jason but um we will cover nasa soup um as uh the nasa soup team is working on the acquisition plan you know and the draft and a draft rfp i think that's going to come out this summer um for nasa soup six the follow-on and i know you've had an opportunity to hear joanne uh, whitek the nasa soup program uh, manager director um talk about you know, the plans for the future, what's your take? I think Joanne and Nessa Soup are really looking at their future in a much different way. And one of the things she told me during a recent interview, and, and Roger, uh, uh, I'll just apologize up front for the shameless plug number two. We are do, putting together a Nessa Soup contract guide that should be out in the July timeframe. And uh, I have about, oh, I don't know, it like, felt like 5,000 words of an interview with, with Joanne. So there's a ton of information there. I also talked with Teresa McKinney about Soup 6. So I think what they're looking at is how they become more of a strategic contract. And this is something that, as she said, started with Soup 5. And, you know, in the past, she was, she said, hey, uh, Agency X, uh, if you want to know what you're buying off of Soup, look it up. You have to figure that out. We, we, don't, we don't keep the data. For Soup 5, they've changed and said, you know what, we're going to give you some of that data now. And I think once they kind of saw what was being bought and how it was being bought and that and the people wanted the data, wanted to understand what was being bought, what was understand, you know, who were their top contractors, and they want more of it. And so I think she talks about NASA Soup trying to be more strategic contract, a more strategic partner for agencies. And I think what the conclusion is for Soup 6 is they're moving into services and not, they always could use some services under Soup. And she said, you know, we were known as a product contract for some reason, and we've moved away from the product side. Now we're even moving further away from being just quote unquote a product contract. And we're really getting into services in much more detail. And I think some of the reverse industry days she did with you all, and they did one on the West coast and the RFI they put out in March and they are now reviewing the responses. That's really driving that those answers. And those, that feedback is really driving where they're going with soup six. 
the other interesting point out point out just for that, Roger, is when you ask her why they made that decision, she said a lot of it was on the request of agency customers. They're saying we need more from Soup Six. And she actually said they got the same request from office management budget and some of that leadership in, in, in the White House to say we need Soup Six to meet some goals or some some requirements that are out there that either A, aren't being met, or B, there's an overwhelming amount of needs that maybe GSA and NITAC can't handle on their own, and and that's where soup can help kind of alleviate some of the the burden and some of the the strain on these other contracts. Because you and I know uh, assisted acquisition, they're booked up by August 1. NITAC put a note out, said, get your orders in for assisted acquisition by August 1, or don't get your orders in at all. And I know soup is not going to do assisted acquisition, but the fact is, there's this need for these services as part of IT and that maybe uh, obviously there's a market there for everyone. Yeah. Well, it's, um, that's interesting note that, I mean, it is a, you know, you're, if your customer, you, you, if you're customer focused, your customer drives, you know, your solutions at the end of the day. Right. And I think there's a great opportunity for our NASA, the NASA soup program because they've built on huge success and, you know, primarily being a products you know, with associated ma- services, right? So there's already a, a huge uh, installed base of customers who have had great positive experiences with NASA Soup on the product side. That just gives them a huge opportunity, you know, to expand into services. I think it's a ground. It's a. It could be. It's a sea change. I think in uh, government-wide contracting, and I think it's going to be. I think it's good because competition is a good thing. And I think it brings more competition uh, for GSA, for NIH, uh, the CSP contracts that, you know, and competition drives value for everybody and improves the management of these programs. So I think in the long term, it's a very good thing. And I think, you know, it's, it's great to see them, you know, taking advantage of an opportunity in the market. I love the fact you use the word sea change, Roger, because, in the Polaris discussion, when I talked to folks uh, like yourself who are experts, uh, several folks brought up that word sea change for Polaris in a bad way. This is a sea change in an obviously a positive way. And when you look at the numbers, you talk about how popular soup is. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of folks who have used soup, who, who continue to uh, really find value in soup. I just did some research recently. And number one, uh, you know this, Roger, but folks may not, uh, not uh, soup one, or as they called it, original soup, started in 1993, almost three years before the Klinger Cohen Act. And I thought that was interesting. And when you talk about total dollars spent, when you look across the entire organ- you know, government, about $33 billion were spent on GWAX in 2022. Soup itself saw about $30 billion uh, in just over a four-year period, 2019 through 2022. And Joanne told me that that $30 billion includes 8 to $10 billion in 2022, 2023 alone in terms of how much right. use. So the use has gone up, and, and, and I think that's part of the reason why they're trying to expand what they can offer through it. I think the biggest yeah, challenge well, – go ahead. No, I was going to say, so you know, to your point, it is the longest running you know, in existence, the oldest GWAC, so to speak, but it's also the largest terms of dollar volume. And I think probably part of it too is the fact that they are providing folks that transactional data, you know, uh, per request to help folks manage, you know, their purchases and their infrastructure. I think that's also a huge value of this kind of driven growth. 
the other piece of it is that, that, that has driven growth is the breadth of services. Again, Joanne talks a lot about, well, they think of us as IT and audiovisual, but they're, they're really expanding a lot more of what they provide. And there's a low cost for the, the industrial funding fee or whatever they call it, the fee, yeah. the service fee. And I think that's attractive. And, you know, they really focus on delegation of procurement authority. You can just go in and use it. Uh, other agencies can use it. NITEC could use it. You know, their contracting officers through assisted acquisition. GSA's assisted acquisition services can use it. And I think what they've done and they continue to do is just make it easy. And I think that's what's attractive about it. Yeah, it's um, it's makes it easy. It's also, I think, easier to navigate, frankly, for contractors to add products and um, than it is at the GSA schedules program right now. So, and that's so again, GSA competition. Is, that is something GSA is trying to adjust to and, and fix as well. We know that, right? So, um, you know, Jason is. Uh, we got about two minutes left, I think, in this segment. Um, you know, I, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about too is just what you're hearing about with regard to the National Defense Authorization Act. Is you know, we got through the debt ceiling. Thank goodness, you know, and we're not going to have to talk about that till April of, or March or probably February of 25, or no, it's January 25. So we'll be talking about it during the lame duck, I guess, right? So uh, if I get my dates correct now, but um, what are you hearing about the NDAA? The first thing I would offer is we know now that now that the debt ceiling and those issues have been solved, the House Armed Services Committee is beginning their markup. We know that's going to take several months to get through. Uh, and, and what we always look at when it comes to NDA is, okay, what's the procurement angle, right? What are some of those new provisions? What are, how are they updating? In, in years past, we've seen fewer procurement, big-time procurement provisions in the NDA because I think there was a feeling on Capitol Hill and a feeling among DOD is enough already. Let us catch up and implement some of these things. And you're starting to see some of the implementation happening through you know, final and proposed rules and, and the like. I think this year you may see some new activity around procurement. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to talk to the, the head of defense pricing and contracting, uh, John Teneglia, uh, just recently. And, and he brought up this idea that Congress had come to DOD with something to the effect of 36 different RFIs, as he called it. They're not RFIs like you and I think about in the procurement world, but hey, we're thinking about this, DOD, what do you think? And they had a great combat, a great connection back and forth about, well, we like it, we don't like it, we shift it that way, this has the, these unintended consequences. And I think there's a little bit of opening the kimono a little bit to understand how the process works. Uh, for those of us who have never worked on Capitol Hill or don't necessarily understand how NDA works, it feels very one-sided. So it's really great to see that it's not one-sided. Not that we ever thought it, it was 100% that way, but you never know how sometimes that Congress just throws some spaghetti against the wall and see how, how much it sticks. Or if there's a quote-unquote lobbying effort by somebody who says, we need to change this part of federal procurement because it sucks. And, and, and Congress goes, change it. And no one knows really why. And no one knows what the long-term effect is. So I think we're going to see some procurement act activity in the NDA. Uh, John did not offer a lot of details of what those RFIs are asking about. Uh, but, um, you know, the fact is that they uh, have gone this back and forth and not all 36 will get in there either. Maybe 10 and maybe 20. But I think we'll see some procurement activity, which is exciting. And Jason, we're kind of up on the break. So when we come back, we'll continue our discussion, look at some 
other areas, some things that you've been focusing on, whether it's small business security clearances. Those are, you know, we're talk, we can talk industrial base a little bit as well. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off to the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor of Federal News Network, and we're talking about all things government contracting. And uh, I know, Jason, you wanted um, you had some thoughts, I guess, on the 60 Minutes piece with Shea Assad um, as a member of the Fourth Estate, I guess. Is that what they call the press? I think that's what they call <laughs> us sometimes. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. So, you know, I know it's, it's uh, you know, it's led already, you know, you see the Hill is looking to have some hearings on it or take a look at it. I know it's focused a lot of people's attention, um, you know, and the stakes are high, right. In terms of, you know, supporting the warfighter and all that sort of stuff. Just uh, what were your, you know, impressions of the, of the interview? If folks aren't familiar with it, this is from a couple of weeks ago. And what 60 minutes did was they looked at the pricing that DOD is paying for, for certain pieces and parts to weapon systems mainly, and what they found was, uh, and they their main they had two main sources. One was Shea Assad, the former Defense Pricing Contracting uh, Director, and he was pointed out some just awful charges that DoD was incurring for pieces that you know they had single source. And I, I, first of all, I'll say they did a very nice job. Sixty Minutes on the piece, uh, not not surprising. Roger, as an old person, I'm a big fan of Sixty Minutes. Uh, I don't think young people watch it, but they should because it is very good journalism. I'll offer one little bit of constructive criticism where I thought they fell short is they didn't ask Shea Assad what he did to fix this problem when he was the head of defense pricing and contracting. How did he turn up the accountability issues? How did he ensure contractors were being held accountable? How was DOD using data to push back against pricing, what what he called price gouging? I think that would have been a key piece to the story that they did not, that they did not seem to address. I did talk to, again, John Tenaglia from the, the current head of defense pricing and contracting, and he and I talked about this a little bit. And, and the big question that came up that he offers is a couple things. Number one, he did testify uh, around this issue uh, last year for Congress on the Transdime issue. And Transdime is one of the companies that is being uh, uh, kind of pushed out there as somebody who is, is allegedly really gouging uh, DOD. Uh, and, and he goes, I, you know, he agrees that there needs to be more accountability. It's very important to be a part of any contract. At the same time, he also pointed out that you've got to balance the need between taxpayers' interests and warfighter needs. And sometimes a warfighter needs a part today and, and the negotiations is not so straightforward. And there's a lot of nuance that I think gets lost in the discussion. Uh, the other piece I'll just bring up is, yes, this has gotten con- congressional attention. Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, Congressman Mike Germandi wrote a letter to DOD, Boeing and Transdime asking for more information, seeking briefings about this topic. And I'd like to see where that goes next and, and whether or not there's, again, we know, talk about it's NDA season, whether or not there's a provision placed in there about this issue, if this has you know, kind of sprung enough of a interest. Uh, so there's a lot to watch for. And I think, you know, this is not going to be an issue that goes away anytime soon. But uh, I think we're just at that beginning stages of, of the of the discussion. Yeah, it's a, it is a very nuanced, it's actually a very complex uh, topic and focus. And um, there's so many different elements to it. And you mentioned a part that they would need, you know, that, you know, the 
example from John Tanaglia, I guess, or that that you with regard to needing a part now, and you got to pay for it. But there's a, there's also some structural issues too with regard to if you're maintaining you know very old weapon systems that have been around for a long time, you know there's less demand for parts because you've got less of them over time, right? And there's not just not a commercial market for that. So who you know so you you're squeezing the defense industrial base, you can't maintain multiple sources to compete for a spare part, you know, when you're talking about diminishing numbers of planes or your tanks or whatever that are, um, that are utilizing that part. And then you get into the whole sustainment logistics model as well, that where people have been trained to install a particular part over time, you know, and maybe it's the old part and maybe, but maybe there's a new part that, could replace it that's more cost effective but then you got to take into account all the costs the training changing the logistics supply chain for managing it and all that sort of stuff to actually incorporate that new part and is that worth it all the time is it not you know there's a lot of complexities to this and i think you know the healthy thing this would do is focus on sustainment logistics and the industrial base and then how to how to leverage that and maintain you know, a healthy uh, ecosystem so you can get better pricing and greater value out of things uh, over time. You know, I think that's kind of what I, when I was listening to it, the kind of the takeaways I, I, I took when I, you know, it's complex, it needs to be looked at, but, you know, the whole sequestration of the de- last decade, you know, in the 2010s, you know, just fundamentally put the Department of Defense behind in terms of investments in its own capabilities. And now we're trying to catch up, right? And part of that is, you know, how do we ensure we have uh, the logistics and sustainment as well as the defense industrial base to be able to support the warfighter? And those conversations are going to continue, clearly. I think I wanted to ask you about, and and it was something I think you focused on, uh, and I found it, wow, really, it is uh, is out there. We really do need to think about bad actors and people uh, with phishing attacks and cybersecurity as I guess, you know, you, you know, this story about a fake solicitation um, that's impacted feds, federal employees and contractors. This is a new term I learned, Roger, called whaling. I hadn't heard of it before, but it's a, you've heard of phishing, right? This idea of uh, I'll send Roger Waldron and actually you, with all due respect to uh, you, you'd be a whale too, by the way. But uh, it's the idea of I'm going to reach for CEOs and, and high-ranking folks, president of the Coalition for Government Procurement, you, you, you'd be considered a whale, who have specific power and authority to then, uh, as a bad actor, go after your the people who work with you, work at the coalition, to say, hey, Roger uh, needs a, 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 a transfer of money right away. Please get it done. Or vice versa, you're actually sending the email, right? Someone faking being you, sending the email as you, saying, hey, transfer the money right away because we have to pay a bill. We have an emergency. And the person goes, oh, that's from Roger. That makes sense. I'll do it because Roger is the president. He told me to do it. In the case I wrote about was a CIO at the Bureau of Industry and Security. Someone actually put out a fake solicitation in his name. And, uh, and while he was able to get in front of it to a certain extent, he did have a bunch of calls about it. And he told me a, this, this anecdote, this unfortunate anecdote where a company was responding to the solicitation and was smart enough at least not to send the laptops, about $10,000 or so worth of laptops to the fake address. They sent it to headquarters in DC. And when uh, Nagesh Rao got this, these laptops his staff did, 
they were kind of like, what happened? Why are we getting these? They called the company and they realized that this was a fake solicitation that the company was responding to. And luckily they sent them back. The company had to pay for the shipping, which is fine considering shipping is much less than the $10,000 worth of laptops. But if they would have sent it to the address on the solicitation, they would have been out of luck and, and the, the bad actors would have taken off with the money or the laptops, the equipment. And I think it's just a, it's a good understanding to make sure before you respond to a solicitation, before you, if you see a unusual approach to a solicitation that you just don't automatically respond, you do your homework, you think about it, you check in with the proper folks. Uh, I think that the folks I've talked to are experts in the fraud area. Linda Miller, former uh, deputy director of PRAC and, and former GAO. She says this thing called this attack approach called whaling is becoming more common. And I think feds need to protect themselves as do CEOs and CFOs of companies. They have to be aware of what's happening and, and, and ensure that, you know, this is the way I will only ask for money in the future. Make sure you're clear about it. Right. You communicate it. You're not going to all of a sudden be, you know, new bank account, transfer it right away. Like, and, and if you do get that, if you're a member of a organization that does get that, you should absolutely call behind and, and check, check before you, you make a decision and, and transfer money. Well, wow, that's quite a story. And, and the only reason anybody found out about it to stop it is because they sent it to a different address, right? Well, at the end of the day, I, I think it was pointed out to Nagesh <laughs> on LinkedIn and he posted something on LinkedIn, but it was not well, I think, communicated. And the fact is that this one company got taken uh, and luckily they got saved it is of, of great concern. But I think it's a growing challenge for a lot of uh, uh, organizations as well as executives and companies. And I think it's just, it's a, it's an important to highlight, do your homework, make sure it all makes sense. If it's some random address in, in Des Moines, Iowa, that you've never seen before, you may want to ask the questions. So just don't assume it, it just because it looks like it comes from the government that it actually comes from the government. And, and this is a growing concern. Yeah, validate, validate it. It's, uh, uh, great words of warning, I guess, to close the show there, Jason. Um, we did, didn't get into the clearance issue, but we'll get to you know in small business. But we'll do that next time. I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. You've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.